If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Abigail Adams. She'll be answering our call on August 28, 1801, at the age of 56. After speaking with Abigail Adams, it is clear why she is loved and rated so highly as a first lady. As a parson's daughter, she is humble, living carefully, not to speak ill of others. But behind that sweet demeanor was a woman with a purpose and drive, not for personal ambition, but to better those around her. She did that by managing everything while John was away, building the nation. She inoculated her children from smallpox, invested in bonds, making the family quite wealthy, and bought and sold property while tending to the house and the family. She did it all, even though women were not allowed to do most of these things at that time. She fought for freedom and equal rights for African Americans and women. And in her spare time, she counseled her husband as he rose from a Boston lawyer to the presidency. Because the two of them wrote to one another so frequently, and those letters still exist, there is no doubt that much of his brilliance was really their two minds working as one. The more you listen, the more you'll love her. And as a bonus, this is the first episode where you'll meet the family cat, who I believe is named Tom Quartz, but I'm not sure about that. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and admirers of short round men everywhere, I give you Abigail Adams. Hello, Mrs. Adams. Is that you? Yes, yes, this is Mrs. Adams. Mrs. Adams, I have been looking forward to speaking with you after the conversation I had with your husband yesterday. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm guessing that he mentioned that I'd be contacting you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if the three of us were sitting in the same room with one another. And it allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today because from the standpoint of history, ma'am, it appears that President Adams might have been a fourth of the man that he became had he not had your sage counsel. But before I ask anything, I know this is a strange introduction. May I answer any questions that you may have? Well, my goodness, even after John mentioned that uh, you'd had a wonderful conversation yesterday, I, I have to admit I was shocked to hear that you wish to speak with me, I wouldn't claim to be a great figure in history. So I am somewhat baffled by the fact that you would wish to speak with me at length, but I, I look forward to this correspondence. Usually I'm, I'm used to writing letters with the people I, I engage with, but I suppose this is a, a much faster medium to have this conversation. May I ask, how far in the future are you? I am in the year 1801. I'm actually calling you from more than 200 years in the future. The United States is a powerful country on the world stage, the most powerful. Much has changed. In fact, in this time, you had mentioned that you're used to writing letters. Nobody writes letters anymore. Can you even believe that? That's, that's terrible. I would be quite heartbroken if I were to cease my correspondence. 
it's the way I've kept in touch with so many of the dear people and friends in my life. We know that because <laughs> your letters are all in the public domain right now. History has thousands. I've heard 1,200. I've heard 2,000 of your letters. I've read some of them. They are one of the most treasured items in our history. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I have to admit I'm quite embarrassed <laughs> and shocked. Uh, these would be my, my private letters with John uh, and with my sisters, with my, my friends. My goodness. All right. Well, I, first off, I, I apologize for anyone I may have offended in the private letters that I had, but I, oh, I suppose if I'm talking to you 200 years from now, anyone I would have spoken of or, or might have offended is, is gone in your time. That's a bit of a comfort. <laughs> I am very pleased to hear that the United States is still a, a lasting force in the, in the world at this point where I am now. We've only existed as a nation for a few decades. So there's been a bit of a, an experimental atmosphere around the, the creation of this country. My goodness, 200 or more years. There must have been quite a lot that the nation has seen. Oh, my goodness. I'm certainly not going to tell you about what it's like to live through difficult challenges, that's for sure because you were on the front lines of everything. And it appears as, you know, going back to the letters that you were talking about, the history of these, what you've written and how you thought and how you both felt, Mr. Adams, about everything that was going on. And then, of course, your influence. It's extraordinary what you went through and what it took to build the nation. It's, it's incredible to look back to even think that is possible, considering how it ended up. I am curious when it comes to the letters between you and Mr. Adams specifically, that at one point he understood that the events that were taking place in your time were going to be very important and that he asked for you to both keep copies of all the letters that you sent so that they would be available to history. Is, is that correct? Well, yes. I, as far as understanding that the, the times we've lived through would be monumental in the course of history. Uh, I can't say I necessarily agree with John that my own personal thoughts and musings, my, my worries, my prayers might themselves carry so much weight in the human record. That's, that is rather humbling. Um, <laughs> but, it's interesting uh, that you use that word, humbling, because I'm, as I'm talking to you already, I'm hearing humble in your voice. I'm surprised to hear this because you did so much good for so many people. And it appears that you had a lot to say, a lot of useful things to say, especially to John. I mean, don't you think that John's voice was at least 50% your voice? Well, I won't disagree with you that I, I have certainly left my mark on my good husband. The partnership in our life together has been so intricately linked even when we were apart for long periods of time, John and I have always found that we operate best when we are with each other. We feed into each other's good qualities and support each other in each other's less good qualities. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was raised as a, a Parsons' daughter. My, my father, Reverend William Smith of Weymouth, never wanted an, uh, us to be boastful or or 
overly judgmental or bragging. And my mother, as a, a reverend's wife, was always extraordinarily giving with her, with her time, with her resources. From a young age, I accompanied my mother when she would go visit the parishioners, the poor people in our town, those who were ill or, or those who had lost loved, loved ones to illness. And she instilled in me a, a sense to be good and do good is the entire reason for existence. My, my father did so as well. Uh, and in particular from my father's sermons and his teachings and the upbringing of both of my parents, the need while doing good deeds not to draw attention to oneself, not, not to act for self-advancement and, and vanity, but to do so for the greater good. And I, I should hope that while I yes, have had quite a lot of opinions (laughs) over my life. uh, And I will not apologize for having those opinions or voicing them when in the right company uh, or, or in private correspondence to my husband or my sisters or my dear loved ones or my children. I am, again, humbled that my, my words and my actions might have grown to have such weight to them. I can see now how this came from your parents. It sounds like your parents were very decent people. Your parents, Reverend Smith and, and your mother, they, they owned slaves, didn't they? Yes, uh, this is true. And it is something that I've grappled with since coming of age. Of course, I, I did grow up in a household where we were uh, enslavers and, and owners of people. There were, I, first off, and I, I think you should... I imagine if you have read my letters, you know that I greatly abhor slavery, and mm-hmm. I am at this point in time very pleased that Massachusetts and other areas in, in the United States are moving along with abolition of slavery. I think it is one of the greatest sins of mankind and a terrible, horrible scourge on the founding of this country. It is an embarrassing shame that we have allowed this structure of slavery and of bondage to continue when setting out an idealistic nation of good, of, of equality and of people and of representation. But I, I, as you said, did grow up in a household with slaves. Uh, there was a Tom. He, uh, in fact, had to... Uh, I, I remember that Tom was the one who would smoke the letters that I received from John while we were courting, while John was going through a smallpox inoculation. The correspondences that we sent, he wasn't encouraged to write to me. Uh, In fact, the doctors forbade it, but he had to find some way to amuse his mind while he was alone (laughs) going through the inoculation. And I gratefully received his letters. But any letters coming from anywhere a smallpox house, you, you had to make sure they would not carry along the contagion along with them. So they would be smoked, and Tom was the, the bond man, the, the enslaved man, who would smoke John's letters for me. And then there was a, a woman, in fact, hmm, Phoebe. Phoebe had been my father's, my father's slave, a, an enslaved woman in his household, and she was freed upon his death. And I... Uh, have had Phoebe as, as a dear part of my life ever since that time. Um, as a free woman, uh, my father passed away in 
1783. And as I said, that, that was the beginning of Phoebe's life as a free woman. 1783 is also when I left Massachusetts for the first time and sailed on a ship with my daughter, Nabby, to to France, uh, or first in England is where we landed, and then we lived in France for a time and then lived in London for a time as well. Phoebe, I offered for her and her husband, Mr. Abdi, to live in our house rent-free while we were gone. She did a great service to me as well, making sure that the house was cared for and kept clean and not left to any sort of abuse from having no residence in it. And she, uh, I would like to think, has, had benefited from living in a, a more modest home without paying any rent to it. Uh, but Phoebe has remained in my life. She's been a part of the extended family, not as close as my sisters or my nieces, but someone that I have always tried to see to the care and maintenance of, especially as she has had a few marriages at this point. Her, her first husband passed away, and she's on my list, my personal list of parishioners, so to say, uh, who I uh, attempt to support. So Phoebe was a slave until your father passed, and then she was free and has been with you ever since. Did she take care of you when you were young? Uh, yes, through, through some of my adolescence. Uh, Phoebe was not nearly as important in my raising as as my mother or, or as my grandmother, but a presence in the extended household. Slavery in New England is a much different form than the vast plantations of the southern states. While we do have enslaved people, often they are an extension of the family, though it, it, is, it is not quite family. There is still a, a separation of sorts, but even our extended families without uh, enslaved servants assisting us uh, or, or working for us or being in bondage are large groupings. Many different generations of families, grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, often widows, widowers. It's often a slightly amorphous family structure. <laughs> um, and so without having vast amounts of slaves working on plantations, but rather a few domestic servants, um, so to say, two, I three, see. Three, so that is more. totally different. The the in the South, these would be people that are working hard labor all day out in the sun and in the fields and up in the North in New England. These are people that are indoors. I'm sure they probably work outside, small gardens, things like that. But they're primarily part of the family and living in the house. Is that right? Well, it, it does depend on the house. Uh, my father's household, yes, this was all all under one roof, one existence as a, a larger household structure. Slavery is no more in Massachusetts, but in, in my childhood and my upbringing and my young adulthood, uh, there would be larger households where you might have some separate quarters for, uh, for the slaves uh, and a distribution of the kinds of work that enslaved people might do as well. Uh, it's not to say that everyone was a, a an indoor domestic servant who was enslaved in Massachusetts. Certainly some do work in the fields, but you also have a great number of white men, lower class white men who are, are also doing the same hard labor. The difference is that those white men are free to come and go as they please, whereas the the bond servants are tied to where they uh, are viewed as property. Um, I see. So 
There is certainly hard work uh, and hard labor, but it's, I suppose I might say one difference being that the large plantations in the South and the, the great difference in social structure and the division of labor between the slave masters, the owners, who are able to benefit and lead a life of leisure and Granted, great pursuits, I I think, of President Jefferson and the great things he has done and how clever (laughs) and how cunning and how... He's all of those things. Much to say about Mr. Jefferson. But I, I do think less of him for his ownership of people. But it is because of the hard work and the suffering and the intense labor of the slaves on his plantation that allow him to have this privilege to read as many books as he does and to travel and to purchase himself fine suits and shoes. Whereas in New England, yes, we do have some fine suits and some shoes and there is a a difference between the social and financial states of people. But more often, everyone in New England is working very hard. (laughs) The farms are smaller, but we do have farms. The men all tend to put in their work during harvesting season, and it is, it's a less obvious divide. Um, well, this, this raises the question, because what I'm trying to figure out is that it, in your life it appears that you stood firmly for women's rights, and I'm not sure what your position was on Indian rights, but definitely for the rights of that, that blacks should be free, and just that people in general should have rights and be free. And since you lived in the North, and and it sounds like your mother was a very nice woman, and your father was a parson, as you've said, I'm guessing that his treatment of the slaves that he had was not poor. I'm guessing that he was not the kind of guy that beat his slaves and treated them like animals. And yet, it was very clear to you that this was evil. But did you have a bad experience? Did you see slaves being treated poorly beyond just the fact that they were enslaved, which is poor enough? Or did your, was your father violent with them? No, I, I wouldn't call my father violent by any means. In fact, I think he was quite kind and gentle. But I, I will remind you that men hold, uh, men, heads of households hold power over the rest of their house, whether they are enslaved or not. Physical actions uh, for discipline and to control a family, a household, uh, are not at all uncommon. I'm not saying that my father beat us, but a spanking or a a little tap to remind children to be behaving well, not at all amiss in a household such as mine. It's not easy to get the kids to do what they're supposed to do, is it? Oh, (laughs) uh, I I couldn't possibly agree with you more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, By the way, you had mentioned... You were talking about Tom as the person who smoked the letters. I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about, but I haven't heard that term before. Is that literally as simple as that when a letter would come in from an area that there may be smallpox, that he would just put them in smoke to kill the disease? Or is it something else? Uh, Yes, essentially that, keeping them in a a smokehouse for a period of time so that the pox might be rid from the papers. Similar things happen to ships that come into harbor. Often if there is a a case of pox or or disease on board and and, and that it's known, rather than allowing that sailor or or the goods to leave from the ship immediately upon arrival in a a port, they'll be kept in a, a slight distance from the harbor and have the interior of the hold smoked to help 
rid the cargo of anything that might be carrying in. Oh, so that was common. People are smoking everything all the time, hoping they won't get the pox or transmit it. We're doing everything, hoping that we don't get <laughs> diseases or, or have them transmitted. Or um, Yes, as much care and precaution is taken as we can to try to keep ourselves out of the path of illness. But it is very difficult to control uh, and to predict. There were several smallpox outbreaks in, in my adolescence and, and through my adulthood. But I also think of yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. Disease is an a constant part of our lives, trying to keep I, ourselves cleanly, trying to keep ourselves fit and healthy to the best of our abilities. Doesn't I can't tell you how close to home that feels. Over the last couple of years, we've had the largest epidemic of this kind since, well, for almost 100 years. Smallpox doesn't exist right now, hardly at all, but we have had something similar. You took some fairly extreme actions to protect your family from smallpox, didn't you? I'd love to hear about that. Yes, in 1776, in the summer, of course, when the, the Declaration of Independence was written, and of course John had quite a, a good deal to do with that. You have to, pardon me, I, I associate the times together of, of having the smallpox inoculation and the independency being declared because, well, at the time that I witnessed the Declaration of the Independence being read from the State House in Boston. I was in the middle of a smallpox inoculation myself. There had been a, of course, I, as I said, a vast smallpox outbreak, especially with the soldiers being in the Boston area in 1775-1776. There was quite a remarkable opportunity that presented itself because there were so many cases of smallpox and because there was a fairly large push to inoculate as many as possible. In that summer of 1776, there was a period of time when it was assumed if you were in the town of Boston, you would have either already had smallpox or you would be receiving an inoculation for it. You were not forced uh, from the town if you hadn't, but nobody wanted to be in the town of Boston in the summer of 1776 all that much either. There had been quite some damage caused by the British Army uh, before they departed in March of that year. So the town was a, a bit of a shell of what it had been prior. But there was, uh, like I said, this mass movement of smallpox inoculation, this opportunity for almost everyone in the entire town to be undergoing the experience. And so I moved for a period of a few months with my family to my uncle Isaac Smith's house in Boston. Of course, my children and I, and, and John, when he would be home from the Continental Congress, would be living in a, a Braintree, as it was known then, though that section of Braintree has split off and is now the town of Quincy, Massachusetts. But we moved from our house in Braintree into my Uncle Isaac Smith's house. With, I believe we were 17 people in total or so. This was uh, also included my, my sister Mary's uh, sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, were both there, uh, Mary's children, my niece Louisa. I brought my children along with me, and we went through the inoculation process, some of us a few times. <laughs> uh, you see the... the scratch that would be made and, and the, the contact made from the infected person. You said that smallpox no longer exists. That's wonderful news. <laughs> what, a, what an incredible blessing. Are you familiar with what 
what we have done in our practice of inoculation. Uh, it is still somewhat controversial uh, and certainly not a, a surefire guarantee that you will survive the inoculation. But um, are, are you familiar with the process of it? Well, that's what I was just going to ask you because I, I think you said we make a scratch, and I'm going to guess this scratch is more than a scratch. So, no, I'd love to hear this. Well, um, yes, so the, the idea uh, behind it being that, of course, we know that a contact with a, a person who has smallpox can potentially pass it to another, and often one of the, the main symptoms of smallpox are these pustules that appear on the person's body. So physicians have, in their attempts at inoculation, some have different techniques. Uh, some will do a full cut uh, on a person's arm or shoulder and administer some of the pus from a pustule of an infected person directly onto it. Sometimes the cuts are not so deep um, and might just be scratches, but whether they are deeper cuts or whether they are a more superficial administration, it doesn't always take. You might have to undergo the process a few times, as was the case with our large extended family who were all living in this house. Not everyone got it at once. Uh, you have to uh -huh. wait a period of about 10 days before you start to see any postures or know if you have, in fact, gotten this, this illness. And from there, you watch and you, you care uh, and try to make sure that infected people are not having contact with those from the outside and necessitating the uh, need to smoke Mr. Adams' letters to me when we were courting right. and he was being inoculated. For some of my children, it, it did take many attempts for them to actually uh, begin to have the, the marks of pox and what we had hoped would be a, a five or six week stay in my uncle's house ended up being the entire summer. Um, oh my goodness. But since the town was in this state of mass inoculation, if you were feeling all right, you didn't have to stay in the house, <laughs> which is why I, uh, having at that point a, a mild case of the inoculated version of smallpox, was able to join the crowd and watch the Declaration of Independence being read. Otherwise, you would have missed it. Well, of course, it was printed everywhere, and copies were sent. And I had read some of the uh, earlier drafts that Mr. Adams had sent my way as, uh, along my way as well and had some opinions about the changes they made. But I'd like uh, to hear about that. Yes, what opinions did you have about the changes? Oh, many of the same opinions that Mr. Adams had himself. I have to say, at this point, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact words I might have changed. When you were, as you're talking about inoculating people from the pox, and I'm trying to put myself in the situation of, of being you or being one of your kids, and I'm sitting there waiting for the doctor to come in, and you've got to be thinking, okay, is this a doctor that's going to do a big cut or a small cut? And then after you get the disease, or you don't, or after you get the cut, and then they put the, the pus in the cut, then what are you hoping for? Are you hoping for, oh, yeah, please, I hope I get the disease now in 10 days? Or are you hoping you don't show symptoms? I mean, what, what, what is a person feeling like after that? Are you scared that you're going to die? Well, certainly all of those thoughts will run through your head. The period of waiting is difficult. I apologize. There is a cat on my writing desk. <laughs> 
The period of waiting is agonizing. Um, you are waiting for pox, the, the marks and the pustules to appear on your body. You're hoping that while they do appear, they will be a mild case. Of course, you're hoping that you'll be able to survive uh, the experience. Not everyone does, as I said. And, and this is why it is controversial, because it can lead to death in cases where people are inoculated. My mother had not wanted us to go through the experience of inoculation, but the fall before I took my children to Boston to be inoculated, my mother passed away from terrible communicable disease, uh, uh-huh. along with another uh, servant girl in my household. And it wasn't pox, it, it was other illness, but watching those people dear to me waste away, and, and I myself was sick, and as were my children, several other uh, members of the household, the servants, the people around, watching my mother and and others waste away, left an indelible mark on me. And the loss of her that year certainly contributed to my desire to to do what I could for myself and my family to prevent terrible disease from wreaking havoc in our household again. But you know, we I look later in our lives and we look at all these experiences that we have and these thoughts that we have based on things that have happened to us. And so that makes a lot of sense why that would have been so important to you. That's also why I was asking the question where you develop this firm feeling that slavery was so evil uh, because it doesn't appear that you had a bad experience with that. It's interesting. Uh, can I go back to your your family for a minute? Mr. Uh, Reverend Smith and, and, and your mother. Your family went out of their way to educate you when a lot of women in your time were not educated, but it wasn't a formal education. Am I, am I right on that? Well, I wouldn't say they went out of their way. Now, I, I love both my parents very dearly and, and will always speak well in their memory, but I do have to say that I desperately wish that I had received more education as a young woman. I certainly received what was expected, what was normal, but this was really just a a cursory overview in reading and writing and some arithmetic. I would have loved to attend a school, to learn the classics, to, to learn science and theories that way. I I would have thrilled at it. I was always seeking further knowledge. But I, I was a sickly child. I wasn't hardy by any means. And the only schools in Massachusetts at the time of my childhood that would teach girls, uh, there, there were very few, they were quite far from where my parents lived. And these aren't even you know, the firmly established academies like Harvard or, or anything. These would be a schoolmaster uh, taking in students and, and teaching them often in his home. Uh, but you would travel to a different town and, and board with the schoolmaster and his family while you learned from him. I, I would have loved to do so, but being an ill child and being a girl, I was not expected to put great use to knowledge of that sort. And so the way I learned primarily was through the efforts of my, my dear friends and my cousins and my sisters. When I was a young woman, of course, after learning to read and write, I tried to learn a, a bit of French. 
whenever we would find a, a good book or a pamphlet or a theory or, or sometimes even scriptures or a bit of history that we found fascinating or amusing or which we would want our friends to have their own knowledge of, my friends and I would write to each other about it. We, we passed along literature and we would discuss it through our correspondences. And so without going to a school formally or, or really getting any of those high pursuits of knowledge that I desperately would have wanted. It was more of a self-driven study when able to. Of course, there's always a terrible amount of work to be done, running a household and raising a family, of course, once I began my family, but challenging my mind and passing along the knowledge that had been acquired to other dear ones. It's something I've always held very close to myself. But that was the extent of my education. I was under the impression that your parents went out of their way with the exception of school and really pushed that. But it sounds like they just weren't an obstacle. And if you wanted to read and educate yourself and write, they were fine with that. But they did the bare minimum and you did the rest. Well, yes, i I would be more generous than to say that my parents did the bare minimum for me. But as far as <laughs> I education know you would. goes, <laughs> unfortunately, as far as education goes, and education for girls and young women, at the time of my childhood, the bare minimum really was what was expected and, and often what was delivered. It is tragic that my generation grew up without the fruits of knowledge, without being able to explore science and learn new languages and to travel. In recent years, I have been so very grateful and so delightfully astonished to see the advances in education for women, uh, in, in equal education for men and women and people of color, too. A young man in my employ, James, uh, at the time of John's presidency, who wished to seek an education. I, I can tell you that story a little bit further in a minute. But let's go back to women's education, because this has been on my mind for, well, always. As I said, I, I would have loved to have uh, attended school myself, but it was more self-taught. However, I think that if you offered education to women, and I suppose by extension to other groupings of people as well, you offer the roadway for them to better themselves and to reach ultimate potential. To put a limit on a girl's education is to, at a young age, trap her at a diminished capacity of what she can achieve, what she can be, what she can give. Because only by elevating the mind are you opening the opportunities to exceed, to become a servant to your nation, to your community, to your family. And so education is, is pivotal for the growth of a vital culture. And why would you refuse education to such large portions of the population. It doesn't make sense to take half of the population and keep them in the dark or not utilize their creative abilities. Yes, exactly that. And because we can see throughout the course of history, when we look at stories from antiquity, when we look at works of literature by women that have come through the ages, we can see there is brilliance there. It is not true that it's a, that women are a, a lesser being. It's that there has been a, a bondage from the withholding of knowledge. And it is in its own form of slavery that women should be kept through this way, not allowed to achieve their potential, not allowed to excel. 
and I have, I've always been an advocate for it. And in recent years, since the turning of the generations, there, there was my generation, which grew up before the revolution began, uh, and then the children that we've had uh, who have grown up in the new nation with these ideas of all men are equal and representation in your government. There's been a great shift to educate children, to, to give them these opportunities and to allow them to self-determine because you have endowed them with all of this potential rather than putting limits on them or saying they must remain within one small sphere and, and not accomplish anything further than what's expected of them at birth. There's a long way to go, of course. I would love to see more women admitted to institutions of learning. I should like to see women who can publish their own works under their own names without having to use a pseudonym. I would very much like to see the laws of coverture stating that a married woman's property is her husband's. I would like to see those be amended uh, in the future. And, and I, I hope that by your time, hopefully within 200 or more years from this point, I should greatly hope that there would be advancements made and that you might have women statesmen, uh, women philosophers, and national heroes be of the gentler sex. Mrs. Adams, all of that has happened and exists. And I will tell you that in history, when people look back at some of these things that you're saying right now, these ideals that you stood up for, a lot of people look back at your history and, and they feel like you were one of the pioneers of that movement. And they give you a lot of credit for standing up and saying something when, as you just said, you were talking a minute ago about women and their property. I mean, you have so few rights, you can't vote. And somebody told me yesterday that in that time that women were meant to be seen but not heard like children. And yet here you are standing up and expressing your voice and your words are extraordinary. And a lot of people give you a lot of credit for starting that movement. Can you go back to what you just said about you'd like to see a change in women's property when they marry? Can you clarify what you were saying on that? Oh, yes. Well, I, I suppose I should ask, in the advancements that have been made since my time here, are wives allowed to retain their own property? They definitely are. In fact, I'm going to tell you an extraordinary figure. So this is a time right now where women are claiming rights that they should have had a long time ago more than ever, I think. I think this is a very, very good time for women. They're being heard and there are a lot of women that run companies and they can go to school, all of those things. But the other day I was in a room with a bunch of my sisters and my wife and some, some women and we were having a conversation because it was during the holidays. And I asked them all, if you were to say how fair are the rights of men and women 50 years ago compared to now? Well, they said 50 years ago, from, from my time, they said that that split would have been like 5 or 10%. Men had 95% of the rights and women had 5% of the rights. But everyone in that room said it was 60-40 now, where men and women, where it's not 50-50 yet, where that you have all the same rights, but that it's much, much closer. And so your effort has bore fruit, most definitely. That is a wonderful thing to hear. 
Well, I, I should have to say, if I were to, to think of the comparison now, in, in the legal stance, rights are solely within the hands of men. A married woman has no right to retain her property, as I said, or, or to inherit in her own name. Of course, these laws of sovereignty within the family, they can't in practice be held 100% of the time. For example, a, a father, a, a man of a household might be the sole owner of all of the property and all of the money and legally the head, legally the center of the family. But to ask one man to carry all of that responsibility on his own and hold it in secret without sharing that burden, without sharing that knowledge with his, hopefully, a partner of a wife, that's extraordinarily difficult. And often those men lead themselves to ruin. While I have acted as uh, an executor of John's estate to an extent, uh, don't let him know I uh, know I told you that. I <laughs> Mom's the uh, word. Uh, of course, Mr. Adams understands that in our history and throughout our marriage, he has been so very, very, very dedicated to the United States. There's the cat again. <laughs> um, so very dedicated to his role for the nation, that managing household expenses or finding what to invest in from year to year uh, or properties to buy or you know, second houses to sell off, where to make budgets meet, how to make sure that you're not massing massive amounts of debt for your children. As vast as my dear husband's mind is and as much as he can contain within it, to ask him to contain all of that uh, responsibility as well is simply not fair. Uh, and this is the case with many partnership marriages where you might have a, a woman managing the family finances, but it is with the permission of her husband. But should anything come into a legal battle, that permission is not valid. It is all to be done under the name of the man. It is all to be done for the benefit of his plans. Here you are running everything. John, Mr. Adams is away handling the revolution and the creation of a new government, and, and here you are handling everything. I read once that you had even made the decision to invest in revolutionary bonds that paid off extremely well for you. Where did that come from, where you had that ability or that knowledge to make those decisions? Well, a bit of luck, uh, a bit of savvy thinking a bit of leniency on the part of my husband, uh, a bit of assistance on the part of my uncle. So as when I would make these financial arrangements or purchase bonds and securities or deal with any of this, I, I did have to do it through a man. So I, I operated through my uncle, Cotton Tufts, and he was the one who made these purchases for me and occasionally had to put them in different names or say that he was acting on behalf of my husband or my son rather than myself. But taking those little financial risks is something that I felt strongly about. Now, money has always been tight for my family. We are in a better state now. We are certainly not amongst the wealthiest of Americans. <laughs> Our wealth is a mere shadow to that of Mr. Jefferson or Mr. Washington, but we have tried to keep ourselves out of debt especially in the early days of the revolution, when John was in the Continental Congress, and then when he had gone to Europe on his own, there was never enough money to go around. It was a wartime. Things were scarce. And, well, John, meanwhile, had to maintain these diplomatic standards. If you're serving as a, a representative of 
a new nation to the courts of Europe, you're going to have to wear a respectable suit, and a respectable suit in the courts of Europe costs a great deal of money, and that's just one suit, never mind the upkeep of a house and the maintenance and and all of that. So there was never a lot to go around, and it did take an extraordinary amount of determination and savvy and budgeting and putting money by. And I did feel strongly that a little investment, a, a little risk would be worth it. And yes, that has paid through. So uh, I am quite grateful that I was able to operate for the benefit of my family financially, though I, I did, as I said, have to do it through legal roundabouts at the mercy of the men in my family. Speaking of legal roundabouts, I have to guess, I think that you are savvy, and I'm just guessing on this. I don't, I don't actually know. But I, and remember, we're way into the history, so you can answer this comfortably. I have to guess that there's a couple times where you took some of these actions and signed Mr. Adams' signature, knowing that he would be okay with it. Is that correct? Well, sometimes things just need to be done. <laughs> it takes an excuse. <laughs> Uh, as I said, John's a very busy man, and for so many years of our marriage, we have been in separate locations. While working as a partnership and, and trying to operate as a duo for the benefit of our children, the benefit of our family, the benefit of our nation, of course, expedience sometimes is necessary. Uh, so I, I won't say I always followed every rule perfectly, but I should say that I am grateful that first I had the consent and the support of my husband for, if not all of what I've done, at least very much most of what I've done, and that <laughs> if there has been any reward from it, uh, that it has been worth the risk. I want to ask you another challenging question. I'm not sure exactly how to say this and, and not sound rude. This is just from things that I've learned and read. But when a woman marries a man, her property is his property. And if he's going to make any legal decisions, he, well, he's the only one that can make the legal decisions. She can't make them. Is, is a woman in your time considered property of her husband? In a legal sense, yes. Whereas any, any land, any financial profit, any <laughs> even just theoretical assets, uh, debts and such are, are all in the name of the man. To join with him, to enter into his family is to enter under that umbrella. Uh, so, yes, in a, in a legal sense, a, a woman is the property of her husband or of her father prior to that. And, and that's why you get into gray area when you have widows, but often widows are relying on the charity of their families or of their communities. While there's a small amount of gray area freedom in widowhood, it is by no means weight as a stain, uh, which is often why so many widows remarry if they possibly can. So I had read yes. that you had made the statement that all men would be tyrants if they were allowed to. And I think that probably is true. In your time, if you had one of those stereotypical men, which you're prob is a, probably a lot of them that would fall under the category of that statement, if you had one of those stereotypical men and they had to take advice from a black man or a woman, who would they most, li most likely listen to? So just to, to verify, this is a, a theoretical or a, a rhetorical 
circumstance where a white man is receiving instruction from either a black man or a black woman? No, a black man or a white woman. A black man or a white woman. Ah, I should say that, uh, of course, depending whether the black man is a free man uh, or not, the legal status does change some. But as far as instruction or request being met favorably, it, it would a white woman will hold more sentimental sway in the situation than a black man in this case. It I, sounds like it's hard to answer. It is. There is oppression, there is subjugation in, in both directions. My gut tells me, though, I'm, I'm just imagining the two theoretical interactions, and I do feel that there is more leniency in the hearts of white men for white women than white men for black men. There is, in the hearts of many, still a, a fear and a hatred of black people and the ability to receive instruction from someone of another race, I, I don't imagine would be met with any kind of uh, ease, whereas a man might listen to his wife, even if he were one of those tyrants of men, simply because it's also a belief that men ought to be, if women are property, then they ought to be a property well-maintained, uh, that they, they should be cherished and, and supported and not abused. Of course, different husbands will have different interpretations of this and allow themselves different leniencies. But there is the desire to, to take care of women, perhaps more than the black people around us. Interesting. If you were going to predict in the future, which of course you could have no idea what would happen, but if you were going to predict that there would be a black president or a female president of the United States first, which one would you predict? My goodness. Yeah. Because there has been one, but not the other. Oh, good gracious. Oh, well, that is, that is astonishing. <laughs> I, I'm simply imagining, imagining either a black man or a white woman being elected, or I assume the woman in this theoretical uh, that you're speaking of now uh, would be a white woman as well. Yes. As we were speaking of before. Oh, oh that, is a, that is a hard thing to guess. I should think that perhaps as advancements go and perhaps as, as I said before, the, the kindnesses with which certain groups of people are met versus the unkindnesses, I should think that perhaps it would be a woman Though I am shocked to find myself imagining that situation and, <laughs> and giddy with it, in fact. Uh, and I think of all of the responsibilities of the presidency and, and of the, the things that go through one's mind and one's heart when, when endowed with that responsibility. And I should think that a woman would do great work. <laughs> I think you're it. right, too. I, I really do. I, I'm amazed that we haven't had a female president yet. We were very close. But I'm amazed that we oh. haven't because I think that women have a little bit better temperament for that job than maybe men would. And, but no, the answer is we had a, a black president first, and uh, he did an excellent job, uh, a lot of people think. And, uh, but, oh, good. But, yes, but, but I, I do think that women would, would have a better temperament. If Abigail Adams was running for president, she would get my vote considering that the women of that time were more or less property of their father and then their husband, I am amazed at how much she accomplished. She had the perfect mix of boldness and humility. 
In the next episode, you'll hear of her famous letter to John called, Remember the Ladies, and John's poor response to this forward-thinking request. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't told a friend about the Calling History podcast, how about sending one of them a text right now?